This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. When considering what makes people change in therapy, we often focus on things like how willing a client is to change, the relational fit between therapist and client, as well as the efficacy of therapeutic interventions. But what about self-compassion? This doesn't seem to get top billing when thinking about how change happens. In order to seek healing, you need to be able to value yourself and see yourself as worthy of healing. We cannot heal what we don't love or feel care for. Cultivating self-compassion brings love, care, and cooperation into your system instead of division and intolerance. And when you can entertain the idea that you might not be inherently wrong or bad, you have taken a significant step in healing. Valeria Tellez interviews Tanya Fruhoff. She is therapist, founder of Catalyst Counseling, and speaker. Tanya Fruhoff is a therapist and founder of Catalyst Counseling, a private therapy practice located in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her practice focuses on helping adults heal and recover from complex trauma, codependency, and addictive behavior. With an MA from Adler University, Tanya is also a CMAT Certified Multiple Addiction Therapist through IITAP, the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Tanya has been featured on local radio as well as in various media publications, including Reader's Digest and Psychology Today. She believes that healing is found in connection and seeks to help clients to cultivate this within themselves and with others. Meet Tanya at CatalystCounseling.com. Here is the interview with Tanya Fruhoff. In your own words, who is Tanya Fruhoff? <laughs> A big question. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, she, she's a woman who's who's on a, a spiritual journey in a, a human form and is um, learning and um, learning about herself and learning about life and, and trying to um, make the world a better place. I often wonder how we get to realize that that this is a spiritual journey. How did you come to that understanding, Tanya? I think actually through a lot of therapy uh, through therapy work. I mean, I think that that growing up, the attachments that I had to what I thought would make me happy and the pain that came from that attachment, um, I was sort of thinking, well, that's the problem. That's the problem. I just need to get ABC to happen in my life before I, before things make me happier, before I'm all better. And uh, through an, an excellent therapist um, in my life, who I've worked with for 18 years now, um, I realized that this is actually a spiritual unfolding. So learning about ego, learning about, you know, just, just you know, spirit and um, practice of mindfulness and um, just realizing that the attachments um, through our ego are, are usually the things that are bringing us pain and that the, what we're experiencing in our life is really the reflection of spiritual um, journey. So it broadened the horizon of just um, that I'm just me, this little me in life. And I, I often ask another question about the goal, not the destination really, but 
Where are we trying to get to with all this healing work? Do you have any idea? Do you have a vision for that place? (laughs) (laughs) I guess the vision would be, I mean, I think there's many things, but if I had to maybe pick one, you know, vision, I think that it's the vision of authenticity and connection. Um, So I think it's kind of the vision is more, I would say it's actually more, less maybe a vision and more of like a felt sense of experience. So, you know, when you feel connected, you know, when you feel like you're in your power or you're in your truth and it's that felt sense of I'm here, I'm connected, I'm feeling true in myself and I'm sharing that can be an individual thing or that can be with, with someone that can be a shared experience, but I see it as more of a felt sense of authenticity and connection. That place that you envision, it doesn't really exclude the feelings, the bad feelings per se, the negative feelings, no. or would it exclude that? I think that they're unfortunately essential. <laughs> so the and and when way I do my work with clients, um, I know we have a tendency, and I do too, to kind of say, okay, well, this is a negative feeling and this is a positive feeling, and we we kind of put them in binary terms. And I really see it as I see them really as like this is an uncomfortable feeling or this is a more comfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I don't think we can get to that authenticity or that connection sometimes without going, without pushing through our limits. And usually when we're pushing through our limits, as you said, whether it's with family or whether it's within ourselves or friends or just expectations of what people have for us, I think we inherently have to push through a lot of discomfort and um, with courage. And this is not my definition, but what we understand courage is um, doing something even with the presence of fear or in spite of the fear. Um, So I think the negative feelings, quote unquote, negative feelings, I think they're actually essential to our growth. Yeah, I agree. A billion percent. Yes. Mm. Being comfortable with the uncomfortable. It's so important for growth Yeah, in that sense. How would you describe what compassion is, Tanya? Compassion, my understanding is sense or an awareness of someone else's pain or of, of pain. So compassion, um, I referenced Kelly McGonigal in um, the blog that I, I wrote because I think she has a really great way of explaining it, but it's really like a, a pro-social feeling. So it's like something that we can feel when you, you're recognizing something in someone else. So it's a, a recognition of pain and having empathy for that pain. That's the nature, I think, of compassion for, for, for me. Yeah. yeah. And then if we can extend that to define self-compassion, then it's pretty much the same thing. Right. Being and empathic with him. Yeah. And a compassion for your own pain. Because I, I, what I see a lot of the times is that people are so intolerant of their own pain points. They're intolerant of their fear. They're intolerant of the parts of themselves that they don't like or that they judge. And so they dismiss that and dismiss a lot of themselves. So that compassion sort of allows you to kind of a step back so that you're not so attached and so blended in with that pain. And for you to be able to step back and say, Oh, I see how hard this is for me. I see my pain points. I see uh, where I'm hurting or wounded. And that observation aspect of it helps distance, but also helps you be able to sort of be, be with it. Another question that just came to mind is the difference between self-compassion and self-love and self-care. I usually use the word self-love. Do you mm-hmm. see any difference or they're all one and the same somehow? That's a good question. I think that self-love is an aspect of self-compassion. So I don't think you can have self-compassion without self-love. Uh, I think that the act of compassion, again, is more of that recognition of the pain or the recognition of the hurt. So I think that in order to, I think it's sort of a, a chicken and the egg. So I yeah. think that you need uh-huh. to be able to be, <laughs> true. And then you're, you're, you're loving yourself because you're, you're being compassionate towards yourself. Um. <laughs> so it is the same thing. And self-care, would that be another component of self-compassion and self-love or something completely different? I actually see self-care as maybe I would call it like an offshoot or a tangent or like a byproduct of having more love and compassion because self-care is um, 
you know, we're, we're doing things that are nurturing and that are helpful for ourselves. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to be helpful or nurturing if we hate ourselves or are in loathing of ourselves. So I think we need that self-love in order to extend ourselves in, in, in ways that, that feel good for us. And that's the, um, so self, so self-care would probably be, I would say self-compassion in action or self-love in action. So it's a, a way to express self-compassion and self-love. I agree. I have too many questions here, the open questions. Let me ask you this one. Yeah. I love this question for some reason. If life had one purpose, one purpose only, what would that be? I think to find love and connection. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, because I think that's really what we're here for. Um, I think we're here to transcend the limits to our love. I think we're here to share love. I think we're here to connect with life and with ourselves and people so I love that answer and of course I wonder what it looks like what is the description for that like how can we express that Tanya or what would that look like when we are there well I think that I think it's an ongoing thing I think that people I think it's really individual actually um as I think that people have different ways of expressing it almost reminds me of the love languages book uh where they about you know some people like to express their love through words or through quality time or through extra service or touch um so i think that however the, the person or that individual experiences connection is that they i a they know what that is so that might be i'm, I'm having meaningful conversations and and um and important words exchanged with people that i love or i'm making sure that i, I tell them i love them you know, I'm telling my mom or my dad, you know, I love you when I, when I speak with you or I'm doing things to help make your life a better place or for, for, for yourself, you know, it might be something like I'm willing to be honest about how I feel even when it's really hard. Um, because I think that that, um, self-love is not just like going for massages and pedicures. Uh, you know? Yes. <laughs> it's like I agree. Setting boundaries, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. So I think that it, you know, I think we recognize we're doing things that make us go closer to someone or ourselves. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love that answer. I love your wisdom. Thank you for oh, thank being you. you. <laughs> I'll go back to the topic of spirituality. Do you have any, let's say, defined spiritual ideas, concepts, or belief systems? I would say it's eclectic um, and probably contradictory. So anyone, I don't, if people are listening to this portion of it, they're probably yeah. going to say, She's really confused. (laughs) It's pretty eclectic. So, I mean, I I believe in God myself, but, and so I I believe in prayer and um, consciously connecting with a higher power, but I also really love ideas around Buddhism and, uh, and I meditate most days as well. Meditation has been something that uh, has been a a byproduct of COVID actually. Um, So it was a thing I would say to my clients, you should meditate, but I wouldn't do it. I was just saying, (laughs) I started to do it and then I come on, okay, I get it now. Uh, Meditation Uh I find is, is really profound in terms of connecting to something that is higher um, than myself. So I, I think that, you know, however I, experience spirituality at the end of the day it's about higher power i also equate god with the feeling with the essence of love and um kind of the, the, the in the marianne williamson vein uh, um or of course in Bill's vein of that we, we either really are running from love or we're, we're, we're acting from a place of love or we're acting from a place of fear um so love would be the the, the spiritual idea that i subscribe to I love that. I have to use the same word always. (laughs) It's always the case. Yeah, I absolutely love this idea that we can come to see and experience that life is unconditional love. There are so many names we can use in labels, God, the universe, divine, source. But it's the same thing, isn't it? It's unconditional love. Yeah, I really, I really think it is. I think that we get very particular about it has to be this or it has to be that. And if it's not, you know, it is wrong. If it, you know, so I, I don't want to, I don't for myself get caught up in, in the actual name of it, so so to speak. But I do see it as, um, as all, as you, as you say, sort of synonymous with, with love, unconditional love. On healing, I have a few questions for you. Let sure. me start with this one. What are some of the misconceptions we have about healing? And also, what are the obstacles to healing, Tanya? Mm, okay. So I think one of the biggest 
misconceptions we have about healing is that we get to a point, this magical point in the future where we are quote unquote healed (laughs) and we are going to be just suddenly better. And then we don't have to deal with any of the things that we used to deal with in the past. (laughs) I think that treating as the destination and 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 a point that we get to that we can say you know I've reached the top of that hill and you know I usually say to clients when we get to the top of a hill you actually realizing that you're sort of plateaued and you're at the bottom of another one <laughs> <So> <laughs> there's true. more there's more to go <laughs> yes healing is a process and um, I I think it's um, and that healing it's not the as a, it's not just that it's not it's not a one time thing. It's that it, it, it's a it's like a, a daily thing that we have to sometimes kind of keep on re experiencing or stepping into. So I guess what I an example I can give of that is um, I, I've worked a lot in addiction in my time, and when they talk about acceptance, um, because so much of it is uh, I accept that I'm an addict or I'm I'm accepting I need to find acceptance. It's not a one time thing. It's it's an ongoing thing. So so. And when I'm faced with something I really want to do, the acceptance is reminding oneself, oh, yeah, I, I can't do that. Or I have to accept that I have this limitation. Um, and with healing, I think it's the same thing. It's it's that you're actively choosing moments to heal over and over again. It's not a one-time thing. But I think people get frustrated and they think that, well, why am I not healed yet? And uh, that would be the biggest obstacle that I find to healing. I often also wonder why some of us are open to healing. We uh, become very aware of the suffering, that mm-hmm. the patterns that cause suffering, and then we are willing to open up and then adopt that the path of healing. But mm-hmm. some of us just go through lots of suffering and don't do that. They don't open up to healing. So I wonder why. Do you have some ideas? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that, again, very individual. I think that for some people that there is an attachment to the pain and to be living in that pain would feel really drastically uncomfortable, even though because it's familiar. And I usually say to to clients, you know, what you what you're feeling is familiar is not always safe. People can sometimes confuse safety with familiarity. Oh, this is what I've always been experiencing. So there's a threat to the identity, I think, when we are thinking about either letting something go or not living in service of, of, of pain. So I think that the attachment to the pain and the not trusting, not having a point of reference sometimes of what life, um, what life on the other side even looks like, you know, um, I think that that is absolutely hard. It would be like, you know, telling someone, okay, we're going to jump off this cliff, but just know that there's going to be something that's going to catch you, you know, and that's, that's not appealing to a lot of people, rightfully so. So I think that the attachment to the, the, the pain is usually the biggest obstacle and the fear of what is going to happen if I let this go, because who, who will I be then? It's sad to hear. I'm just listening to you here and kind of um, uh, seeing some people in my family that they mm-hmm. are still going through this journey of attachment to pain and suffering. What would you suggest for people like myself that you know we become more aware of these things? And then how do we pass that on in a way that we are not imposing that others change? Because that's not really the idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that when you're, if it's, you know, family members or, or um, people you're around that are kind of in this identity, uh, they've attached the identity, their, their identity is based in pain. I think that, as you say, I mean, you can't change people. So I think that awareness is going to be the first step if there's ever any change that could happen. So sometimes it might look like um, feedback if people are open to it, right? Because you don't want to be um, saying, well, hey, this is what I see in you. And they're like, well, I didn't ask for your unsolicited. <laughs> yes. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's an element in there too. Uh-huh. Like, really hard for me to like this is what I notice in 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 you or this is what I notice in our dynamic or this is what I'm noticing and and this is how it feels you know when I see this do you see that in yourself or do you what's your experience of that if there is an openness that they would want to even look at it because I don't think people change unless they are feeling enough pain I would say and and again, people have a high tolerance for pain, so that that enough pain is a is a moving target for people. But you know, I think that people don't really. You have to get 
the the pain needs to feel more painful than the than the advantage of what you're getting from the pain if that makes any sense like the the um i think that you need the, the discomfort of the pain needs to override the identity that you're getting from the painful place right that makes so much sense and it's another sad statement right yeah. observation to make if you have a family member who is really in that pain identity and that's and they will not look at it or or um, be willing to change, then it might be then about boundaries that you need to put up to say, well, maybe I have to distance or maybe I have to change the way that I'm interacting with this person because it might be very hard for you. Uh, what a dance, Antonia. What a dance <laughs> this life is, the experience of coming here in the human body where we feel so whole, complete, has been my experience, maybe not everyone's experience. Then we are so joyful for no reason. And then all of a sudden, all that disappears. And then now we, we feel shame and a lot of self-judgment. And this is actually caught my attention in your, the article you wrote about compassion and self-compassion. So before I ask you questions about that, talk to me for a moment about the main inspiration and intention to becoming a therapist and creating the Catalyst Counseling. Mm, it's a long road I and I wrote a story on my website about it, but I think that it was um, sort of being on a quest in my life for an experience where I would be using my skills, I think, to the highest potential. And um, I knocked on a lot of the wrong doors before I found uh, therapy. I actually did a, my undergrad, you know, back in the late nineties, we'll just say is a long time ago. Yeah. I did an undergrad in a, an undergraduate degree in psychology and then abandoned it and, and thought I wanted to be an actress um, and did a lot of other things that were not working in my life. And it really, the catalyst for me to actually start my business catalyst counseling was getting to a point where a relationship broke down, realizing that, you know, I was in my late thirties and that there was really not a lot of great options for me career wise, unless I changed something really significantly and noticing that, you know, I had to really do an overhaul and take a, a step into the unknown um, in order to have the life that I wanted. So I went back to school and I got my master's and uh, ended up working in addiction, even though I was told that I would never be good in addiction because the addicts would, quote unquote, eat me alive. And uh, I was not going to excel in that field. And um, long story short is that um, by doing a lot of things that didn't work, recognizing that maybe there was another avenue for me and that this just felt like the right fit for me. Thank you for doing what you do and for being true to yourself, Tanya. Yeah. We get to hear a lot of those voices, right? External voices that we can't do this or we should yes. do it that this way. But I love when I see it in myself and other people that I talk to or come across when they are just, they do what they have to do, what they want to do, what's true to them and despite of what anyone thinks. So that's beautiful. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Your work as a therapist, is that online? Do you meet your clients online, offline, groups, corporations? I do predominantly in-person individual work um, in my practice. Uh, with the advent of COVID, we've had to pivot a lot. And so uh, Zoom has been a new addition to the work that I do because I also do trauma work. And, and funnily enough, I never thought that that could be incorporated into Zoom, but I still do my EMDR work sometimes with clients over Zoom. So that's a, it is a lot of flexibility now. But at the end of the day, most of my clients will still express a preference for in person. I still prefer being in the room with someone. So it's individual in person. Um, and I don't, I had to accept my limitations around group. I wish I did group. I don't like doing group therapy. It's, it's too many, too much energies to, for, for me to own into and, and balance. Uh, so I don't do groups and uh, I do work. I have a lot of executive, um, high level executives that I work with. So it doesn't, I don't market myself as um, corporate counseling, but uh, I certainly have a lot of uh, prof working professionals that, um, that utilize my services. 
Wonderful. And I'll have the link of Catalyst Counseling on your podcast profile. And I'll ask you for the link at the end. So let's talk about self-compassion. This is one of my favorite topics because it relates to self-love. It's the same thing, as you said before. So how do you integrate self-compassion to your practice? That's the first question. Why it works? And um, what was the inspiration for that? So I'm going to answer those questions, I think, just in a different order and start with the last question first and then move to your first question. So in my experience, I think that one of the biggest, one of the biggest obstacles, not the only obstacle, but one of the biggest obstacles that I found to healing was actually is shame and the feelings of self-loathing that my clients have. So when I was doing my graduate work, I was staunchly believing that I would be a CBT therapist and I love CBT. I incorporate CBT into a lot of my work. But what I did realize was that sometimes reframing your thoughts absolutely can work. But when your clients were having a lot of problems with, um, you know, just sort of trying to reframe the thought of like, well, maybe I, maybe I am good enough. Maybe I can try to believe that and I'll fake it till I make it. Or maybe I am lovable but they weren't really able to internalize the, that, that shift. And I realized that just thinking differently isn't always going to create changes. Although sometimes it will, it doesn't always. So the shame and the self-loathing was the obstacle that I was realizing. Like, well, these, so many people hate aspects of themselves. They can't tolerate aspects of themselves. So how are they supposed to heal when they're in this hate relationship with aspects of themselves? So I realized that the times where we could get them to soften and soften by means of distancing themselves a little bit more in a mindful way so that they can have self-compassion to see how they're suffering. So it's kind of the idea of look at your suffering, look at how this is hurting you instead of um, I'm just feeling horrible and life sucks and and, and there, there's no hope for me, you know, instead of being blended or attached into that pain the idea of taking a step out and sometimes even saying to them, if you were with a child and this person, this inner, this little boy or this little girl was, was, was crying, was feeling lost, was feeling frustrated, was feeling all of these things. What would you say to this child? How would you interact with that child? And their responses would usually be, you know, I would wrap my arms around that child. I would give them love and reassurance. And the question becomes, well, what changes when it comes to you? and this relationship with yourself and their the realization that oh i'm being excessively harsh with myself is a big realization and so that's what led me to really valuing the the tool of self compassion to be developed in the therapy room and in the therapeutic relationship because you can't heal what you hate yes a billion times to that <laughs> And that can be a process, of course. Yeah. Absolutely, it's yeah, absolutely it's an ongoing process. Absolutely, it's not a destination exactly, but it's it, it's a process. But the intolerance that people have for aspects of themselves is a real struggle and is a real obstacle. So that's where I think stepping out of yourself and being able to say, "Oh, I see how I'm hurting, and maybe I can love myself through that hurting," or I can just realize what what a what a heavy load I'm carrying here uh, emotionally. I think it's a really important thing for people to be able to see. Yes, I agree. The self-judgment and shame and all this negative self-talk in our heads, do they always come from childhood traumas and bad experiences or we can somehow acquire them even as an adult? in our day-to-day experiences? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that they're absolutely acquired. And, um, you know, the idea that everything always has to come from childhood, I don't think it necessarily always has to. Um, There's obviously, I think that's the breeding ground for a lot of the messaging because when we're children and when when we're born and when we're developing, we are developing our first relationships with caregivers and we're kind of relying on the external world to tell us how life is and who we are. And um, there's a therapist, and I wish I could take credit for this, but it's a really profound thing. uh, But I I read recently where, you know, children will take the development, the developmental experiences, and then 
create an identity about it, right? Instead of it just being like, well, that was a really painful experience. They they, they kind of extrapolate the, well, this means that I wasn't worthwhile. I wasn't lovable. And I, that's, I really agree with that line of thinking. But to your point, things can happen in childhood. We can have a lovely or we can have a lovely upbringing and then go into the world and realize that we're bullied in school or we don't feel uh, belonging or we have a teacher that tells us that we aren't smart or we're not going to amount to things. So I think those wounds can happen just with the interaction with life. And it's not always necessarily uh, because of mom and dad. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And what would be the antidote to that, Tanya? What can we do on a daily basis to, I would say, to reconnect with what is already there, the true self, our true nature, or the God self, as some say. I know you mentioned meditation earlier as one of your mm -hmm. practices. Mm -hmm. So talk to me for a moment about that. Well, sometimes, again, I think there'd be a few different ways that, that we can do that. And I think, again, awareness is is the first step in, in anything. What I sometimes say to clients, because uh, not everyone wants to meditate, uh, I would say maybe think about a time in life where you did feel connected to, or, or the most connected that you felt. And, and there are, I acknowledge there are people that will say, I've never felt safe in life or I've never felt, I've actually never really felt that. For, for a lot of people, they, they sometimes have had a, a peak moment where, where they have felt either relief or, or a connection. So, so I would encourage them to remember or think about that experience. Or if they haven't had that experience, imagine what it might feel like if, if you had. Um, and that's where we sometimes imagine an unconditional love, higher power part. But when people connect into either a memory of feeling loved or connected or whatever it is for them, I encourage them to also pay attention to where they feel that in their body. Because we put a lot of weight into thoughts, feelings, which are really important, absolutely. But that head is connected to a body that gives a lot of information. And so sometimes we can help people get to some of those places, if not through meditation, through uh, noticing where do you feel that feeling in your body? Is there, is there warmth? Is there a feeling of relief? Is there a feeling of, of rest? Where is that in your body? Let's develop that. Um, how does it feel? What color is it? What does it look like? Um, how do you feel towards it? How does it feel towards you? Working in somatically a bit more to help instill a sense of love connection, I think is, is, is helpful for yeah. people. Yeah, mm -hmm. it very much sounds like it. The love and connection that you speak of, those two components are found within. Within, yes. Not memories from um, romantic relationships and attachments. That's, that's a very good point, yes. It's not the, yeah, the, the, or the romantic moments that you've had with someone. Um, it might be that when you feel, it could be that when you feel that, that love and that acceptance, you know, where, what, what do you, then what do you, in yourself or what does that say about you or like what how does that affect you because we do want to bring it back to the client to say this is actually yours because these peak experiences with people are usually just mirroring the love that we have for ourselves. we attribute it to it's this person or it's that person I work a lot with sex and love addiction um and and um especially more so with, with women but uh the, the idea that things we have to be fulfilled with the relationship or we have to be fulfilled with these peak experiences of intensity and and really a lot of the times is, is people are really just realizing what they're capable of and they're they're really realizing their capacity or their ability to experience love but they they attribute it to it's this person it's that experience so we want to bring it back to the to the person to say this is actually your experience yeah uh, that sounds very empowering to me just to listen to that again. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder. Yes, yeah, it's uh, always within. You write something about shame. You say, shame is an inherent part of the human experience. You cannot remove it from your system. No. <laughs> yeah, wow, that really, huh, it caught my attention. So, yeah, yeah how is that? <laughs> how, did, how, how does it work? We And I know you mentioned healthy and toxic shame. So I would love to know the difference. Yeah, for sure. So shame is one of the affective circuitry that we sort of are born with in, in, in our body. So if we were to say, I guess, 
that's a, it's a great point that you bring up because a lot of people I, that I hear, they, you know, they say, well, I just want to get rid of my shame. Or I want to get yeah. rid of my anger. I want to get rid of these things. And it's like, well, we can't, we can't surgically remove this, you know, from <laughs> shame. If you really think about it, shame helps us maintain belonging with people. So when you're growing up and, uh, you know, you've, you've done something that hasn't really maybe lined up with your values or the value system of the collective, it's important to know, Hey, that didn't really line up with what your, your truth is or, or what we, what we do, you know, as a, as a collective. So the shame helps can help with maintaining belonging and acceptance and connection. So shame is the toxic versus healthy shame. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard this before, but it's like guilt is, you know, I've done something bad. Shame is when we attribute our flawed, like this is a virtue of ourselves being flawed. So we're attributing a personal defectiveness to to ourselves. So shame can be helpful because if you've done something that you, that didn't line up with your value system and you're realizing, wow, I really misstepped there. And we all have had that experience. Um, it's important for you to not feel good about that. And it's important to recognize that that was a misstep and, um, the shame, if you don't feel shame, then you're more likely to just do things without any consequence and, and be pretty reckless in life. So I think that we need the shame to kind of keep us on track so to speak, but where the, where it becomes toxic is when we start to build an identity around it. So it becomes the sense of I'm wrong. I'm defective. I'm inherently unacceptable to people. Like my, my person is just unacceptable to other people and to myself. And when we create an identity uh, around that and the shame will then make us want to retreat from other people and from ourselves because we don't want to be exposed for being so defective. Mm. So that's where it gets toxic. Wow, that makes so much sense. I love the way you talk about identity because that's something that really resonates with me, that life is this beautiful experience of everything and it's not really who we are. Everything, the, the thoughts, the belief systems, the body even. I love that idea. This is a spiritual understanding that um, for some reason resonates with me. The way you speak about identity makes so much sense. Um, So I had another question. Actually, it's not a question, a comment to make about um, another passage in the article you wrote that caught my attention, where you said, knowing that my preference for self-criticism is because of the way my brain functions and not because I am defective was a game changer. I can choose to witness my own pain and be with pain instead of judging myself for it. Just summarizing what you've been saying about identity, I love that you include the word witness here. So becoming the witness of the experience of everything that's happening, which is not a detachment, right, Tanya? It's different from detachment. It's. I think witnessing is actually, to me, I understand it as a version of detachment. It doesn't, when I say detachment, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not still connected with it, but it's just that the witnessing is the meaning that I'm just not enmeshing or blending in with that experience entirely, that, that I have the ability to step back and just look at it. Let me look at it and see it instead of being it. Yeah. So, yeah, this is an interesting conversation that I don't often have, but mm. yeah, about detachment. So the witness is that something, it's creating that distance. Does it make us almost like robots in a way? How does it affect us, I wonder? Well, I think that it, it, it creates a, a lot of relief and, and some freedom within. I, I think the word detachment, I think it, sometimes with our languaging, it, it can mean a lot of different things because I take your point sometimes when we it's like I'm detaching from you it almost feels like I'm projecting or I'm you're not you're not in my sphere you know anymore. yeah you're pushing away and trying get to get away yeah, and that kind yeah. of thing. So when I'm when I'm imagining um I think the word witnessing is is a great word because it's the idea of being with something instead of being in it right so how that affects someone I think is that when they can see like oh this is just what how I've been what I've been doing or this is just the behavior this is the way uh and and, and our brains you know uh, run and I again I haven't coined this term so I can't call it as mine but 
what we say is what what fires together wires together, right? So when we have a common thought or behavior or whatever it is that we're repeating all the time. So whether it, when it comes to shame, you know, I'm bad, I'm defective, there's something wrong with me. People just wait until they find out the truth about me. Uh, I'm the worst of the worst. When those things get repeated, uh, then they it starts to become very, very quick in our brain that this is the way that we, this is our default, or it feels like a default for us. And um, then when we get blended in with that, you know, so when you, when you have that, that thought, then you're going to have a feeling the shame, right? So you might feel, you might feel warm, your hands, you feel flushed, your heart starts beating fast. I don't like this feeling. Your brain signals, the amygdala, amygdala signals, uh, you know, smoke alert. Oh no, there's something wrong. I'm, I'm not feeling good. And then we have this cycle of thought feeling, you know, intensifying. So when we're, when we're enmeshed in that experience, you can't do anything really when you're when you're in that because you're you're kind of hijacked emotionally, so to speak. So the idea of witnessing where you can say that's just what I do. That's that thought is just what my brain tells me, or that is um, a real practice behavior that I've been doing for a really long time. But that doesn't define who I am. That's not my identity. That witnessing then can create, in my experience, a sense of relief. Even if it's momentary, then they might go back into the shame. But we're looking for those moments of relief and and distance slightly where we can see what we're doing and kind of go, oh, that really does hurt. That really is painful. Wow. Um, and, and we're looking at it through through curiosity, you know, with a curiosity lens. Yeah. Oh, I love that component to being open and being curious uh, instead of judgmental or trying to push it away. I love the way you say that. It, it makes so much sense. So being with it, the experiences, and not becoming the experience, right. although sometimes it feels like in order to feel everything fully, we've got to become one with it. It's a relationship in a way. So it's like almost like a choice and an option we have. What kind of relationship do we choose to have um, Absolutely. Right, with anything? Absolutely. And that becomes empowering because then it is exactly to your point. What is the relationship that I'm choosing to have with this? It, it, there, there's almost an empowering aspect of it because you're realizing that I'm bringing, I'm bringing something to the table here. This is not just happening to me. Um, to your point before, and I want to just, um, again, acknowledge credit where credit is due, the idea of curiosity, um, looking at things with compassion and curiosity, a lot of that is also informed, um, or that comes from IFS, internal family systems, which is a, an amazing, amazing uh, framework uh, created by Richard Schwartz. And um, they talk about, uh, I don't want to go into too much of a tangent here, but just to say that the, the, the essence of self, um, the essence of, I'd say, coming from a place of love, truth, authenticity. They talk about looking at things through curiosity, compassion, um, connectedness, you know, clarity that we have those, that access to those parts of ourselves when we are able to witness, I think, what is, what is happening. Right. So IFS speaks a lot about that for, for people that are listening and that might want some information about um, being in that consciousness, um, which is really helpful. I have um, heard about it and I, I talked to a lot of therapists on the method, uh, the f internal family systems, right? It really, really works. I think they also call parts work. I have heard yeah, that too. That's exactly it. So a lot of like my work is very eclectic. And as I said, I mean, I, I do still use CBT in my practice. Absolutely. But incorporating uh, aspects of IFS, uh, I am an EMDR practitioner as well for, for trauma. So I think it's sort of using what the client really needs at the end of the day as well. Because um, if you're trying to just reframe thoughts till the end of the day, and they're realizing you're realizing that they're stuck in a shame loop, then use utilizing skills where we can get them to witness a bit more and use the self-compassion. That would be more helpful, I think, than just saying, but we're, we're doing CBT and we have to just think differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being open to life, Tanya, and having these deep observations within yourself and then people that you work with, that you help. It's really beautiful. Thank you again. And we're almost at the end but I do want to make an, uh, another comment about something that I read. The self-compassion can affect and result in chains at different levels, physiological chains, thoughts and feelings and beliefs. 
So that's interesting. I know you mentioned earlier that, of course, the way we think affects the brain and changes the way the brain works. So would that be the physiological part of it or there is more to it? Yeah, that's absolutely a part of it. The physiological, and I'm not a scientist, but the, the how I understand the nervous system, because we talk a lot about nervous system, and I mentioned it in the article that I wrote, is that when we're in a place of connectivity and feeling safe or safer or just feeling like we're able to be in the moment without threat and we're feeling safe and connected, that's a part of our nervous system that's called the ventral vagal system. That's a, a, a part of the nervous system that we that's available to us when we are feeling connected. So when we're looking at shame and we're looking at getting um, triggered by that shame and when then the thoughts and the feelings are, are sort of bubbling up and we're, we're, we're kind of hijacked by that shame, your physiology is going to change and you're going to move out of that ventral vagal system and go into likely fight flight next. And then that's the first line when we jump out of the, the window of tolerance. And then if we if we can't manage the fight flight for too long, then we're going to start to go into some sort of shutdown or, or freeze or shut shut down, so to speak. So the physiology is important because if you look at it through the lens of then shame, if you're beating yourself up and you're, you're, you're feeling so disconnected from the therapist and yourself and you're feeling just in that, that, that shame cycle, you're going to be feeling probably feelings of like, it's going to feel threatening for you. You can't heal when you're in fight flight. You can't heal when you're in a shutdown because your system is sort of conserving and shutting down and trying to protect yourself. So it doesn't mean that ventral vagal is better than the other ones because you need to know how to, how to, mobilize for threat and you need to know how to shut down if, if you're if you're being attacked for, for long enough. So those are things that are important for us to be able to do. But when we're looking at healing, from my perspective, you can't heal unless you're having some access to connection. And when we're in shame and we're really hijacked in that shame and we're we're, we're stuck in it, nothing is nothing is coming. You're you're not letting nothing in. You know, I mean as a therapist it's like, you know, when that wall goes up and you can't, it just feels like you're shut out. And then that client is shut out from themselves as well. And you're kind of sitting with the shell of a person who's in front of you, but you're, you're there's really nothing to, to work with, you know, so it's trying to kind of find a way through that door or, or nudge that, that um, door a little bit more open or that crack a little bit more open so, so that we can kind of say, Hey, what are you noticing here? And, um, and how can, what, what is it like for you to be in this shame? And we're trying to get some of that connectivity back online for the client. That makes me think about uh, the idea of balance and harmony. Yeah. So healing and harmony, right, Tony, kind of, um, they come together. It's almost like this, where we came to a point of making peace with mm -hmm. the conflicts within and then now there's this sense of inner peace, of balance and harmony. It has been my experience. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, I have the ending questions. Before that, uh, would you like to add anything else that we didn't cover today? I just, I think we covered it, but I just want to say that, you know, the, again, that no, no aspects of self are bad. Um, as IFS says, no parts are bad. So when we're talking about the shame, I just want to maybe reiterate that this is not something that we want to weaponize or, or, again, it's not the enemy. We can work through those wounds. That's where we get to the other. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, so to, so to speak. So it's all good, you know. So when, when, I, when these things come up, I just want people to kind of think about instead of maybe being so intolerant or judgmental because we didn't speak a lot about judgment today, but the judgment goes along with the shame. And uh, that can, those can be invitations really to heal instead of being obstacles and evidence that, that, that you're not good enough. So it's all, it's all welcome when we're working this way. Yes, a billion times <laughs> to this, yeah, to being able to see the big picture of unconditional love, right? Yeah, we get really myopic sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Which is part of that, too, that unconditional love, isn't it? Everything's included. Yeah. So two more questions. Uh, what is another word for life? <laughs> <laughs> for life. Yeah. Uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And the last question is, what are three things you wish everyone to experience before they lose the body, before they die? The feeling of profound safety with someone else, um, the feeling of just being in, 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 in someone's arms and just feeling um, protected, loved, and safe, uh, and laughter, and, 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 and find some joy. I love that, the component of, of laughter, of joy. It's connected to healing, isn't it? The more mm -hmm. free we become from those judgments within that negative talk, really basically judgment, then um, wow, life becomes so different uh, the way we see it. Uh, what an amazing experience this is, experiment even, if I can say, yeah. <laughs> being a human body. Thank you so much for your presence in the healing world. Tanya, thank you for what you do, how you do it, for being you and everything else in between that could be felt. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was uh, such a joy to speak with you today. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? Sure. So you can go to my website, www.catalyst-counseling.com. And uh, I, that's where I am. I'm not a huge social media presence. I'm, I'm pretty private, which is very rare. I'm probably working against me in some way, but uh, it, it, the best way is through my website. And, uh, and that's where I am. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. Thank you so much again, Tanya. And we'll talk Thank soon. You so much. Thank Bye you. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Tanya Fruhoff and her work, please visit catalyst-counseling.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.